Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I don't normally have water with me, but I'm feeling like a diva today. So there we go. If it is your first, if it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys checking us out. Um, this is a great day to come. Even if it's your first time, we are wrapping up this series uh, called Let's Try This Again. Let me just explain to you what we've been doing in case you haven't caught up with where we are. As a whole, this series is about this idea that many of us were given our faith, particularly our Christian faith, when we were children. And as we grew up and we kind of got into the adult world, many times the trials and the tribulations of just everything that we got to deal with began to chip away at our faith and chip away and chip away and chip away, sometimes to such a degree for some of us that it left us with no faith at all. And it's not that we walked away from Christianity. It's just it doesn't have the same place in our hearts that it used to. It's not the way that our, sort of our parents thought it was going to work out for us. It's not the way that we thought it was going to work out. And so every single week, we've been asking a question. What would it look like if we were to rebuild our faith as adults? If we were to hit the reset button and say, you know what? Let's try this again. And so for the last eight weeks, we have been reinstalling, if you will, the operating system of Christianity, piece by piece, sort of taking a look at these fundamental building blocks that help to build our faith so that we can have an adult-sized faith for an adult life. And we've had some great conversations, but we haven't talked about one particular topic. And this particular issue, this, this concept that we're going to land on today, is a major piece of the faith puzzle. And it's a major part of Jesus' ministry, and it's still vitally active to this day. So as we wrap up this eight-week-long journey, I want to talk to you about the church. Now, when we kind of look at this word, it's a little bit of an interesting topic, because what I want to do today is I want to find out exactly what this means for us as individuals, what this means for us as a church, and, and sort of what this concept means for the world at large. To kick off this conversation, I want to take a look at a conversation that took place 2,000 years ago. It happened between Jesus and his disciples, and it happened on the road just outside this city called Caesarea Philippi. So they're walking with Jesus, and Jesus kind of stops them and says, boys, let me ask you a question. Who do people say that I am? Right? You're out there in the community, you're talking to people, you're taking the pulse of what's going on out there. When, you, when you're talking to people, who do they say that I am? And, the disciples look at him and they go, well, you know, uh, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. All the answers were wrong. It's clear to Jesus that people at this point really don't have any clue who he is. And then he stops dead in his tracks. And he looks at them and he goes, but who do you say that I am? It's kind of like when your boss comes into your office and goes, hey, pop quiz. What's the mission statement of the company? <laughs> Who knows that, right? No, you're laughing because nobody knows. I know the churches because I wrote it, but like nobody knows what their, you know, their church's, you know, or their business mission statement. But he's like, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who, you know, is always the first to answer, generally speaking, never has the right answer. He steps up to the plate and he goes, oh, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it's almost like Jesus is like, oh, yeah, that's right. Bingo. You, that's exactly who I am. And, and he kind of qualifies Peter's answer, and he goes, but you didn't learn this anywhere. This truth was revealed to you by God. And then Jesus says something that is so amazing, I, I can't really over-exaggerate how important what he says is. 
Because the next line, what he says changes the course of the world and continues to chase, change the course of the world. He looks at Peter, he looks at his disciples, and he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And this verse, Matthew 16, 18, is perhaps one of the most hotly debated verses in all of the Bible. Catholics look at this verse and they say, well, what Jesus is saying here in this moment is that he is going to build his church on the rock. And because Peter means rock, what Jesus is saying here is that Peter is going to be the very first Catholic pope. Protestants look at this verse and they say, well, we can understand why you would, why you would think that he was talking about Peter, but we actually believe that what Jesus is talking about here when he mentions the rock is actually the truth of the statement that Peter just said, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. But what's so interesting, and I'm just going to, I'm now ad-libbing this in the moment. After the last service, a woman came up to me and she said, have you ever been to Caesarea Philippi? And I said, no, no I haven't. She goes, when you go to Caesarea Philippi, you have to understand that there is a huge rock face. And at the bottom of the rock face, there is a pool that they would sacrifice infants in. But this gate that was over it was called the gates of hell. And in some translations, you will see Jesus saying, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. In this moment, he is pointing to an actual thing that they are looking at where infant sacrifice is going on. Let me take you on a bit of a history lesson with this verse, because this is interesting. When Matthew heard the words of Jesus, when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build, Jesus was speaking Aramaic, and Matthew is translating it now into Greek. But he didn't write the word church. He wrote the word ekklesia. I put it up here in Greek so you can be impressed with the Greek that I know, okay? <laughs> Took, you know how long it took me to get those letters in there? We got them in there, though, okay? He wrote the word ecclesia. And the definition of ecclesia means gathering, congregation, or assembly. And so what Jesus is saying in this historic moment, he's going, guys, I am going to build my gathering, my congregation, my movement of people, and the powers of hell shall not conquer it. It's an amazing statement. Absolutely fantastic. And then this verse became what I'll call a victim of translation. So in 1382, a man named John Wycliffe decided for the very first time that he was going to translate the ancient scripture into English. Let me kind of give you a little bit of a disclaimer with this. He couldn't read Greek, but he could read Latin. So he got his hands on a Latin Bible, and he was going to translate this into not modern English, old English. And I'm going to show you exactly what he wrote, and I'm going to read it in the way that it's supposed to be read, so don't laugh at me. But he was beginning to translate Matthew 6.18, and he wrote this, And on this stone I shall build my... Because old English was spoken with a Danish accent. Well, that's true. <laughs> and then he gets to the word ecclesia. And he's looking at this word, and he's trying to figure out, how am I going to translate this into Old English, English, so that they'll understand. Anyone here who speaks English as a second language, you know that translation is not a science, it's an art form. 
You need to make decisions about how you are going to say the things that you want to say. And in this moment, John Wycliffe is looking at this and he's saying, how am I going to make this? How am I going to capture what Matthew was saying, what Jesus was saying, in a way that my fellow English speakers will understand it? And so he borrows a German word, a word that he thinks will capture the essence of what Jesus said on that road outside of Caesarea Philippi. And he reaches into German, and he writes, Kirka, Kirka, where we get the word church. Christina, the girl who was singing, she was looking at this. She goes, is that English? That's English. Okay? Kirka. Now, here's the problem. Kirka does not mean assembly. Kirka does not mean gathering. Kirka does not mean gathering. Kirka means house of the Lord. That's what church means, house of the Lord. And because you guys now can read Greek, you know that Jesus didn't predict a place. He predicted a people. Jesus didn't predict a building. He predicted a movement. Let me close the loop on this history lesson for you. In around the year 1500, 1520 or so, a man named William Tyndale came along. And for the very first time in history, he was going to translate the Greek New Testament, what Matthew actually wrote into modern English as we know it. And he gets to this one section, and he comes across this word ecclesia, and his mind is blown. All of his life, he's been told it was a church, it was a building, and now he's saying, no, 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 it's a movement, it's a people group, it's assembly, it's a congregation. And so he changes church back to congregation. And the Bible, as we know, was born. Now, you should know this. The Catholic Church, England, did not want him doing this. They did not want God's ecclesia, God's people, to have God's word in, an English, in, a, in a, a language they could read. So they hunted Tyndale down. They arrested him, and they burned him at the stake. But we can thank him, and we owe a debt of gratitude to this man because he gave us the Bible that we all now can read. If this interests you, I would encourage you to pick up this book, Tyndale, The Man Who Gave God an English Voice. It's a quick read. It's amazing. It will blow your mind to see how the Bible that we read now was put together. Back to the story. So Jesus makes this amazing prediction. He makes this prediction that he is going to build his church, his movement of people, his congregation, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. And his ministry continues year after year after this statement, and it culminates in the crucifixion. And we talked about this last week. We talked about the fact that the disciples had circumstantial faith. And when they saw Jesus, their Messiah, on that cross, it rocked their world. It destroyed their faith. And in this moment, if you were to go up to those disciples and you would say, do you still think he's your Messiah? Do you still think he is going to build this ecclesia they would say, no, we, we were wrong. Because for a Jewish person, a dead Messiah was no Messiah at all. But Jesus conquered death. And he came back, and the disciples were set on fire, and then Jesus called one more meeting. He gathered them all together, and he gave them what we know as the Great Commission. He looked at his disciples, and he said this. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. 
See, we quickly read that past this kind of a thing, but Jesus is saying, I haven't just been given authority over the Jews. I've not been given authority just over the Christians or Israel or the Middle East, not even just this world, but heaven and earth, the entire universe. And I could ask anything of you, but I'm making one demand. I want you to go out into the world, to the four corners of this earth, and I want you to make followers of Jesus Christ. And they hear this, and they're kind of like, wait, 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 us? You want us to do this? Who, who are we? we? We have no connections. We don't have the skill set to do this. And I think Jesus sort of heard their heart and their concerns. And he wraps up by saying, and know this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he disappears. Scripture says that Jesus in this moment literally ascends to heaven. And in that moment, he passes the torch to the disciples. Here, it's your turn. You take it from here. And so what do the disciples do? They make their way back to Jerusalem. They make their way back to Jerusalem and they begin to preach about Jesus. And what's so interesting, and you can go read the sermons for yourself, but what's so interesting about the very first sermons is they didn't sound anything like the way that I speak up here. Those first sermons really don't sound anything like any kind of sermons you hear in churches. They're not talking about Jesus' teachings. They're not going over the Sermon on the Mount. They're not giving advice on finances. They're not giving you encouragement for worry. All those very first sermons did was focus on the resurrection. In fact, their sermons had four points. They would say, you killed him, Jerusalem. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. Oh, I was looking at this and I go, wow, my weeks would be a lot easier if I just came up and said this to you guys every week, all right? Over and over and over again. You killed him, Jerusalem. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. Now we look at this and we go, well, it seems a little bit rough. They seem a little bit simple, but this is what the people of the time needed to hear. Quite frankly, it's what we need to hear. And this four-point sermon worked. It worked. And the Jesus gathering was born. And the movement started moving. And you can read in Acts that in Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people converted they gave their heart to the Lord. Jewish people became Christians, even though that term didn't exist. They became followers of Jesus. Pagans became followers of Jesus. And the disciples were on fire and they traveled. They were going 100 miles north, 100 miles south. It was just amazing. This movement was on fire. This movement was moving. And then something happened. The movement stopped moving. This amazing ecclesia, this movement of God happening all over Jerusalem stopped moving. Because persecution broke out. And Christians everywhere scattered to save their own lives. And this Jesus movement got bogged down and came almost to a screeching halt. It's at this point that based on what I read in the scriptures, I think a conversation took place in heaven. Now this conversation I'm going to walk you through don't go looking for it. It doesn't exist, okay? But this is what I picture happening when this Jesus movement bogged down. I think God the Father sort of walked over to the balcony of heaven, if you will, and was peering over, and he, he said, Jesus, come here. 
then we had a problem. And he looks down on earth and he goes, what do, you, what do you see? Let me tell you what I see. And he kind of answers his own question. Let me tell you what I see. The movement has stopped moving. The movement has gotten bogged down and we need to get it moving again. The, the disciples that you chose, good guys. And I'm not going to say that they're playing it safe. But when you told them to go into every nation, I think they heard neighborhood because they're not leaving Jerusalem. At most, they're going 100 miles north and 100 miles south. Jesus, I think we need to infuse this movement with some fresh blood. And I was thinking about it. I think we've got to find somebody who's a leader. I think we've got to find somebody who's well-educated. I think we've got to find somebody, you know what would be great? We need a Roman citizen. That will help him travel in the world much easier. We've got to find somebody that others would look at as a spiritual leader. You know what would be great? You know it would be a hoot <laughs> if you could find a Pharisee. People would, re that would really, that would be great. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen this guy down here, Saul of Tarsus? At which point Jesus is like, have I seen him? What am I, hard of seeing? Yeah, I've seen him, okay? For the last like five months, all the prayer requests I'm answering are from people saying, you know, dear Jesus, keep this guy away from me. He's trying to kill us. I don't know if you're aware of Saul of Tarsus down there, Dad, but, but he's trying to stop the movement. He is trying to kill, and he is killing Christians. He is per it is his fault, I guarantee you, Dad. He is the reason that this movement has come to a screeching halt. And God looks at him and goes, it's great, right? Let's use him. Can you make that happen? And Jesus is like, okay, I can do it. And you can read the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9. And it's amazing. Because what you see is this man whose scripture says was breathing out murderous threats. I, I just, it's one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture because it's just a powerful image. This man breathing out murderous threats against Christians. And all of a sudden, on a road, on the way to Damascus, he meets the risen Jesus in, in, in a vision. And his life is changed. And it becomes, he goes from a Christian hunter to basically the top Christian that has ever walked this earth. Time goes by. He goes to Jerusalem, Paul, known as Saul of Tarsus earlier. And he gathers together the disciples. And he gathers together all of the Christian leaders in Jerusalem. And he says, all right, let's talk about this movement. This movement is bogged down. And we got to get this movement going again. This message of Jesus needs to get out there. Because this message of Jesus isn't just for Jewish people. This message for, for, of Jesus is not just for the Middle East. It's for the entire world. So we need to get it out there. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide up the Roman world. And I kind of picture Paul slapping a big map up on the, on the wall. Takes a marker. And he draws a big, huge circle around Jerusalem. And he looks at the disciples and he goes, you all take Jerusalem. I'll take everything else. And he does. And he gets on a ship, and for the next 30 years, Paul travels the Mediterranean world, stopping in port after port, city after city, anywhere there was a synagogue, anywhere he could find Jewish believers, he went and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was a long, hard 30 years that he devoted his life to Jesus. And he started churches, 
And he endured persecution, and he endured sickness, and he visited people in hospitals, and he visited people in jails. He was shipwrecked, and he got arrested, and he got arrested, and he got arrested, and he got arrested for 30 years. Finally, one time he gets arrested, and this time is different. Because this time, he gets arrested under the reign of Nero. I don't know if you know who Nero is, but Nero is considered to be a bloodthirsty tyrant. The worst emperor the Roman Empire ever saw, famous for slaughtering Christians, and now this man has the head Christian in his jail. And I just picture Paul in that jail cell. And I just have to imagine that he can hear the screams of Christians being slaughtered in the streets. And he knows that this is the end for him. This is where it all comes to an end. And I have to wonder, as he found himself in this jail, if he ever asked himself, did it work? As he thinks back over the 30 years of his ministerial career, all of the traveling, all the people that he, that he met, all the Christians that he visited in jail, all the Christians that he visited in hospitals, all of the letters that he wrote, all of the hardships that he endured, did it work? Was this a pipe dream to think that this ecclesia that Jesus predicted, was it a pipe dream to think that, that this could withstand the Roman Empire? He wonders this, would Nero do to them what he's about to do to me? I'm going to invite you to sort of use your God-given gift of imagination here for a second. Because after 30 years of serving the Lord Jesus, Paul was finally let out of his jail cell one morning for the very last time. And he was walked down the streets of Rome, out of the city gates, to his execution, which would have been a beheading because he was a Roman citizen. Paul was kept in the forum. Here's a picture of the ruins of what it looks like today. Now, here's what I want us to do. Imagine in some way that we could be transported back 2,000 years so that we could be with Paul and support Paul on this last walk to his execution. That we could come alongside Paul in this moment where it's coming down to the end and just whisper in his ear, Paul, Paul, don't be discouraged. It worked. It worked. Paul, I know that you're looking around right now at this amazing city and you see idols of Roman gods everywhere. But you just need to know that soon, this city will be filled with icons to Jesus Christ, your Messiah. Paul, one day, where I come from, Paul, one day, there will be crosses on the tops of almost every single building in this city. 
And those crosses are not there to scare off would-be criminals. Those crosses are there to celebrate the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. And continue to walk with Paul. We're getting near the gate, and we pass Nero's circus off to the right. And we say, Paul, Nero's circus? The place where Nero would release animals to tear Christians apart limb from limb? The place where where Nero would put tar into the hair of Christians and light them on fire and use them to light his garden parties. The place where, where Peter would be crucified himself upside down, legend tells us. You need to know, Paul, that one day Nero's circus won't even be there and in its stead, a magnificent building commemorating your friend, Peter, perhaps the greatest building in the entire world. Paul, you need to know that one day crowds, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, tourists, will come to this city, Rome, and they're not going to ask, where was Caesar Augustus born? They're going to ask, where was Paul the apostle jailed? Paul, I know we're running out of time. But you need to know that when I come from, there will be a church in every major city on every continent. Continents that you don't even know exist yet. All the letters that you wrote, Paul, the letters that you wondered, did they even get to the intended audience? Did they even make it to the church? Will people read it? Will people be affected by it? Will this make a difference for the cause of Christ, Paul? You need to know that one day people will read your letters in over 1,500 different languages all across the globe. Paul, in the future, families will get together once a year and they will tell a story. And it will mention Caesar Augustus, the very first Roman emperor. But they will not be telling his life story because he's become merely a footnote in the birth story of Jesus Christ. Paul, one last thing before you go to Jesus. You need to know that one day, parents all over the world will name their children Paul. And Peter and Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and John. And they'll name your salad, Caesar. There you go. <laughs> kind of lightening a little bit in here. Ugh, gosh. It's all he gets. He just gets a salad, a couple of croutons, and some anchovies. Hold those if you don't like them. Here's the thing. Do you think Paul... This 67-year-old man who devoted 30 years of his life on the way to being executed, do you think he could ever imagine this? No way. Do you think he could ever imagine that this would have happened in the world, that Christianity would have become what it was today and what it is today? But it happened, just as Jesus predicted it would, when he said, I will build my church my ecclesia, my gathering, 
my assembly, my congregation, my people group, and all of the powers of hell will not conquer it. Nothing is going to stop the advancement of Jesus' church because his spirit is with it. His presence emboldens it, and he promises to be with it till the very end of the age. And his ecclesia, us, is the epicenter of God's activity here on this earth. It's amazing. But last week, my dad sent me an article. And once I read this article, it started popping up all over the news. I don't know if you saw it yourself. The article said this. October 17, 2019. In U.S., decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. Within the article, there was a graph. Pew Research Forum found that over the last 10 years, there has been a 12% decline in people in this country who identify themselves as Christians. And at the same time, there has been an 11% increase in those who identify themselves as having no religion at all. Now, some people hear this news and they celebrate. Some people hear this news and they're afraid. They're concerned about what does this mean for Christianity in America? What does this mean for, for Christianity in the world? Do you know what this tells me? That the movement has stopped moving. And we know, because we've seen it today, nothing is going to stop Jesus' ecclesia. But there's times in history that this movement slows down. There's times in this history that this movement gets bogged down. And every time the Jesus movement has a stutter step, if you will, God infuses it with new blood. When it slowed down in the 50s, he called in Paul. I believe he called in Martin Luther to help the movement. And here's what I believe with all my heart. That I believe that God has gathered us for such a time as this. I, I truly believe this. I honestly truly believe that he has uniquely equipped this particular church to make a unique difference in this city. The reason I believe that is because the people that come to this church span the spectrum. We have, we have politicians. We have personal trainers. We have teachers. We have attorneys. We have rappers. He's good. We have yachties. We got them all. And we're all different. And yet, and yet, I firmly, firmly believe, because I've spoken to you and I've heard you heart, you have a unique DNA inside of you. You have a unique DNA. And that's why I think that God has gathered you here to this church. Because he knows that every single person that comes to downtown Harbor Church is uniquely qualified to bridge the gap between the church and the unchurched. The people that have a relationship with Jesus and those that do not. That's why you're here. So yes, this graph shows that Christianity may be in decline, that the movement has stopped moving. But I actually think this is God letting us know at this church it's time to get off the bench and into the game. That's why you're here. You have a gift. 
It's time to use it. So what's the practical? If it's your first time here at DHC, we put this word up on the screen every single week because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So as we're kind of wrapping up this eight-week series now, I want to give you two practicals. One for this series as a whole, and then one for today. So for the series, here's your practical. You need to ask the question, what is your next step? Because for the last eight weeks, we have been talking about this journey of faith that we've all been on. Hitting the reset, starting from scratch, rebuilding our faith as adults. So the question is this for you, as you've begun this process of rebuilding your faith, what's your next step? And it looks different for every single person in this room. For some of you, your next step is taking that final step into faith. You've done your research. You've asked your questions. You've been a part of the movement. What is it going to take for you to hand your life over to Jesus Christ? He's waiting for you. For some of you, your next step might be baptism. Perhaps you've said yes to Jesus Christ. You've never been baptized, perhaps as an adult. And you're at a place in your life where you want to let the world know what Jesus has done inside of your heart. Maybe your next step is baptism. Maybe for you, it's trusting God with your finances. Trusting God with your future. Maybe it's getting plugged into volunteering, either in this church or out there in the, in, in the city. I don't know what it is for you, but every single one of us has a next step step, and it's time that you figure out exactly what that is. Now, in terms of today, in terms of your involvement in this movement, this ecclesia, I have a challenge for you. My challenge for you is this. Be like Paul. Here's what I mean by this. Paul famously once said, I am all things to all people. I am all things to all people which means there's no cookie-cutter approach to sharing the gospel. And it's important to remember when you think about your own role in the Great Commission, because if you've said yes to Jesus, guess what? You've said yes to the Great Commission. When it comes to your role in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to remember that only you can do what you can do with what you have. We've said this so many times here at this church, but this is such an important truth because you need to realize that God has equipped you with certain talents. God has given you unique opportunities, a unique history, a unique personality, and a unique perspective on the world. Don't hide from that. Embrace that and use that to get the message of Jesus out there. Wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you hang out, no matter what you're doing, you have to understand that you have access to certain places and certain people and certain opportunities that no one else has. So who has God put on your path? As we bring this to a close, as you meditate on this this week, remember that God has invited you to be a part of his movement, the ecclesia. Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could all be here today. That we can be in a building, Lord, but we know that you talk about building a people. Lord Jesus, every single person in this room is on a different part of their journey. And I pray that today by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would put clear light on what our next step is. God, if that's someone who has yet to say yes to you, I pray, I pray, Lord, I pray that today would be the day. Lord, they would know in their heart that you are who you claim to be. That because of you, Lord, we can be made right with the creator of the universe. And when that happens, oh, then we get a job. And I pray that every single person in this room who calls your son their savior would be emboldened to go out into the world, out into their workplace, out into this community, and share their story. Whatever that looks like, because it's different for all of us, Lord, that you would help us use our unique qualities that you bestowed upon us in a unique way to change this city. And we know, Lord, because you promised it out on that road, that you'll be with us even to the end of the age. Thank you for your son. God, thank you for these people that come to this church to learn more about who you are and what you're doing in this world. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.